all you need to hear today, Leo Tolstoy. Even though I stumble and weave on the way home, it's still the way. It's still the way. I like that. God is a God of grace. God of great grace. If it depended on any of us, it really would be over. But thankfully, it depends on God. So, Exodus chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 to 10. It's on page 56-ish, somewhere around there on the Pew Bible. Not entirely sure. but around, oh, Yeah, 58. Okay. 58 on the Pew Bible. Now, a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman. Right there we see something of God's grace, God's goodness. The house of Levi with the house of Simeon had come in for a bit of a bashing from, uh, from the father, actually, which is quite amazing. Um, uh, their father, Jacob, had given blesses, uh, blessings and words and prophecies over each of his children. Uh, some of them uh, not so nice, like Issachar is a scrawny donkey. Not, not too nice to have your dad say that, but then again, you've never met my dad. Um, they say those kind of things, don't they? But uh, the, the boys, Simeon and Levi, are told of this. It's in chapter 49 of Genesis. Simeon and Levi are brothers, their swords are weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council, let me not join their assembly, for they have killed men in anger and have hamstrung oxen as they pleased. Cursed be their anger so fierce and their fury so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel." Gosh, that's quite a dad to have, isn't it? I think you might have some father issues after that said over you. Uh, and Levi and Simeon had that spoken over them by their father. They would be scattered. He would not enter their council. He didn't want to know anything they had to say. But that's not God's final word on them. And I love that right there. Some of the things spoken to you, some of the things said to you are not God's final word on you. God says, well done, good and faithful servant. Welcomes us into heaven with those words when we stay on the way. It's beautiful. So here we have a man from Levi who takes a wife from the house of Levi. And she became pregnant, verse 2, and gave birth to a son. She saw that he was a fine child. She hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds. Along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds 
and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him. Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Let's pray together. Father, as we explore this great book and the life of this great man, we pray that you would speak to us, that your voice might be clear, that our hearts may be stilled, And that our eyes might be full of wonder as we see your salvation and your work and your sovereignty over the life of people and nations. Lord, would you give us grace by your Holy Spirit to interpret that by your Spirit into our lives. That we might hear very personal words from you throughout this book and especially today. That we might be built up, strengthened, encouraged by your word. That our feet may be set more firmly on that path. In Jesus' name, amen. Now if you are a fan of talk shows, uh, any talk show, or really any entertainment program, you will notice that when people are introduced, they are never introduced straight away. And on the show tonight, we have Sean Connery. They just don't do that. You watch it. Next time you see a talk show, it doesn't go like this. They go something like this. He is known to millions as 007. He is the man all men long to be. And the man or women long to be with. For 50 years he has acted in stage and screen. He's familiar around the world as one who stands up for the nationality of Scotland. Tonight we have with us Sean Connery. And that's the way it goes, doesn't it? I got a bit excited there and I was really shocked when no one clapped. But that would have been odd because Sean Connery isn't good. Well, it would be pretty good, wouldn't it? Hello. Motley Baptist Church. Anyway, they don't do that. First thing I was taught in, in those heady days at Spring Harvest, where, when you'd come in and introduce the people in the big top, never come out and say, we've got Graham Kendrick, because that's just an anticlimax, not very nice for Graham. But you don't, don't do that. You come out and you say, for 25 years, he has rocked the church, or whatever. He is best known for songs like Shine, Jesus, Shine. The church has been built on the praise of this man. Here he is, Graham Kendrick. And still you don't clap. But he's not coming either. And we see something of that in this passage. If you notice as we start in verse 1 and get all the way down to verse 9, there are no names mentioned. 
Now, we do know the names of the people here. Well, we can take a guess, actually, at the, the princess's name. We're not entirely sure. But we know Moses' mother was called Jacobed. We know that his sister is called Miriam. We're not entirely sure what his father's called. But then none of them are mentioned. It's quite amazing. The writer here, maybe Moses, probably Moses himself, wants this to build, wants us to catch something of the dramatic entry that is happening here. I guess throughout the Bible, the most important person is God, obviously. Okay, the most, imperson, the most important person that walked is Jesus, obviously. And then Father Abraham, and very close to him, is Moses. In fact, in the New Testament, we'll hear of Moses more than Father Abraham. Moses, the law given by Moses, the law of Moses. And Moses, in many ways, is a forerunner. He's a shadow of the substance that Jesus will be. So much so that the book of Hebrews in our New Testament spends a lot of time telling us in the first three or four chapters that Jesus is more important than Moses. Because there are some new believers, particularly who had come from the Jewish faith, who were still unsure where they should put Jesus. Should they put Jesus higher than Moses? Does that seem right? And the first three chapters talk about that. Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than the temple. Jesus is greater than the law. He's the fulfillment of the law. And that's the way the book of Hebrews goes. He is a significant character. And the way this is written is like a talk show. It's building the drama until the curtain is pulled back and we are introduced to this man who will, in God's strength, by God's leading and in God's power, bring a nation through into deliverance. And apparently he looks a lot like Charlton Heston. That's who we're going to see. I'd like to read some words of Chuck Swindoll. Because we know this story so well, we, we've heard it, we have seen it, uh, and it's hard for us to, to really imagine it uh, and the personalities and the depth of feeling. So I'm going to read uh, a narrative that he has written. Jochebed, that's Moses' mother, stepped uneasily into the Nile. The night's icy grip on the sky had not yet begun to break up under the warm rays of the coming sunrise. Her only light was some diluted moon glow, heavily diffused by a thick cloud cover. Muted and silvery shards of light darted here and there along the surface. She couldn't see where her steps were landing, but she waded ahead with the certainty that the riverbed among the weeds wouldn't surprise her with any steep drop-offs. Jochebed was not an old woman, but she walked like one now, knee-deep in the water, with her weight over her toes, and each step slowly and deliberately measured. 
One slip on the muddy bottom, and she and the I'm sorry, she and the pitch tar basket in her arms would fall with a loud splash, drowning the meticulous plot she had been planning through the weeks of thought and prayer. She glanced at the east bank. Was her daughter, Miriam, in the proper position? One of the puzzle pieces in her plan was to have Miriam watch from a distance and intervene when the right time came. Jochebed came to the thick cluster of reeds where she had decided to place the basket. The bamboo-like stalks were thick enough to hold it still against the slow, steady pull of the current and close enough to the royal bathing eddy to grab the attention of Myena, Pharaoh's daughter, with the soft cry of a waking baby. Hopefully, Myena would, be, would believe the baby to be a gift from Hapai, the Nile god, and claim him as her own. But if the package was placed too close to the bathing area, Myanna would immediately recognize it as a contrived plan instead of a gift from the gods. The trick was in knowing where to place the basket. Far enough away to avoid suspicion, but close enough to hear the baby's cries. If the princess responded favorably, Miriam would approach her and ask, would she like her to seek out a Hebrew woman to breastfeed the infant? If the princess agreed, Miriam would immediately get Jochebed. By grace, Jochebed would be deemed acceptable and granted at least a few more months with her baby. Gently, she lowered the basket until it bobbed in the water. Then she opened the lid to say her last goodbye. Her little man was growing fast, becoming too old to hide. She caressed his cheek for what she hoped wouldn't be the last time and choked back a sob. He looked so peaceful as he slept, such a contrast to the emotions erupting inside her. They were so close, yet they were worlds apart. She cradled a finger in his palm, and he gently squeezed it with his tiny hand, an instinctive response to his mum's touch. Would it have been easier, my child, she whispered close to his face, if I had done this when you were first born? Would I have felt less pain than I do in giving you away? These last three months have been so precious. She had to speak as though she would never see him again. I love you. You won't remember me, but I will never forget you. I will love you till the day I die. I pray now that the Lord intervenes and that you will continue to suckle at my breast. 
The first golden ray of dawn shot through the clouds in a thin beam, but Jochebed's heart was overcast with an impending sense of loss. The princess would soon come out to the river to bathe. The baby would soon wake and begin to cry. But Miriam would be watching. The only thing left to do was wait. She tucked the blanket a little more firmly around his little shoulders and bent down and kissed his forehead. Goodbye, my son, she said. Then she she secured the lid and took flight for home as fast as she could, praying harder than she had ever done before. It's easy in reading those first few verses of chapter 2 to ignore the emotional impact of all that was happening. Babies were being murdered. And this mother had to say goodbye to her son. I don't know about you, but I've always had the image in my head that this is a kind of random thing that happened. That she put the basket into the flowing Nile and it drifted and drifted and by accident or by God's hand, it arrived with Pharaoh's daughter. But as I, I re- and of course that's Prince of Egypt stuff, and I remember watching that in the cinema and seeing the little basket up on crests of waves and boats coming close and oil, uh, oars digging in, just missing the little Moses basket. But of course when we read the words here, it's very planned. There's no leaving the basket to the elements. It's, it's a plan. She got a papyrus basket, coated it with tar and pitch. She placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. She didn't cast it like a toy boat or like a a poo stick. I do hope you know what I'm talking about. Into the Nile. She placed it actually in the reeds in a place where she knew Pharaoh's daughter would come. And she has her older daughter stand at a short distance away and watch over the basket. It's a great plan. And that's the first thing I want to say here. Within church and within our own lives, there's often two competing forces. There's the, the pragmatic force within us that wants to plan things and make things right and secure things and shore things up, have a good plan. And there's that side of our lives. And then there's the faith side of our lives. That's saying, oh, it doesn't matter. You know, God's in charge. Can do whatever I like. God will always look after me. I don't need to worry about a thing. And of course, either extreme is wrong. 
Jesus, for example, would say things like this to people who want to follow him. Have you counted the cost? No one builds a tower without first working out how much it's going to cost you. He says no one sets an army to war without working out, have they got enough soldiers for this? Jesus asks us to count the cost, to think, to plan, to use our minds. In fact, something beautiful Jesus added to the Torah, to Moses' words. Moses tells us in the Torah, uh, the law, to love the, God, God, to love the Lord with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our strength. That's Moses. Jesus comes along, the fulfillment of the law, and he adds another phrase. So he has all the things that Moses has, our our strength, our soul, our spirit, and our minds. He adds that in too. We are to love the Lord our God with our being our spirit, our strength, our emotions, and our minds. And so often the narrow path that we walk, to go back to that analogy, has us with these pulls, one of a pragmatism and a a cerebral decision-making, and the other with a sort of carefree, uh, doesn't-really-matter view. The Bible says, it doesn't say this, but I'm saying it, blessed are the balanced. God calls us to have these in balance. Our heart, soul, emotions, and our mind. To love God with all. And we see that so beautifully here with Jochebed. She has a plan. But for the plan to succeed, God needs to breathe on it. That's Augustine. Augustine basically said, paraphrase, do your best and pray that it's blessed. That's what he says. And we trust that God will will speak to our mind. We trust that God will make us wise. We we trust that as we lay our lives and our hearts and, uh, and beings before him, he will give us wisdom. Remember? Last week, the fear of the Lord, we looked at that last week. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. As we fear him, as we want to move away from his displeasure and his discipline, God actively renews our mind by the power of his Holy Spirit. He is at work. And we see that here with Miriam. A beautifully balanced life. Plan and prayer. And of course, God is at work. God is at work here. He is not mentioned in these verses at all. But that doesn't mean he is not there. There's a whole book of the Bible, the book of Esther, where God's name is not mentioned once. And he is utterly at work behind the scenes, working, moving, sustaining, planting seeds, planting thoughts, directing creation, directing the stream of events towards him. We looked at this again last week when we said in all things God works together. Or God works together all things for the good 
of us, those who love him and are called according to his purposes. It's beautiful. So although we may not talk about God some days or some hours, he is not hidden. He is still at work. He is directing. He is moving. He is shaping all things. So perhaps there's turmoil around you at the moment. In it, God is working all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. This is brilliant. We can sleep at night because this is true. And so Spurgeon said it, and we say it often from the pulpit, the sovereignty of God is the pillow on which I rest my head. God is in charge. And what a way he's in charge. Look at this, verse 9. We see it so beautifully. God's not mentioned, but for with anyone with eyes to see, we can see God's hand at work. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So this baby goes from one minute being a, a, a despised Jewish baby who is only worthy of death, who has been hidden for three months by his parents, to a baby who is saved from death, welcomed into Pharaoh's household. His own mother gets to bring him up and get paid for it. That's God. Remember this image? I've said it before, this little parable. You remember those old medieval stocks? where you'd put your head in and your hands in and the villagers very kindly would come and throw rotten vegetables and tomatoes and milk at you. Well, God takes all that rotten veg and that milk and the eggs and he whips it up into a, an omelette and he serves you breakfast in bed. When the world kicks you, when brothers and sisters kick you, God is working. He's going to bring you breakfast in bed. Because that's our God. He is for us, not against us. We make so many wrong decisions. Here's the best one I saw this week. Uh, don't tell him I told you, all right? But we, we went out for a meal uh, with my family, with my mum and dad on Wednesday. And they took us to uh, quite a nice restaurant, quite a posh pub. Uh, and after the meal, as you do, before the long journey home, we all went to the loo. Uh, and I was in there with Callum. And Callum was just standing under the, the hand dryer for ages, just standing there like this. And he said, Daddy, I can't get it to work. And he's there, his hands, he's moving them up. You know, there's that sweet spot, isn't there, on hand dryers? And he's trying to find that sweet spot to make the hand dryer work. And I said, cow, this is a special kind of hand dryer. It's a very old-fashioned one. What you have to do is put your hand up inside and pull out the paper towel. <laughs> and dry your hand that way. We all make these assumptions. And often our assumptions are wrong. We make this assumption that God is looking for us to fail. That God is looking for us to step out of line so that he can come down on us like a ton of bricks and prove to ourselves what we've always known, that we're worthless. 
And we just live in fear and wait for that moment when, when God will speak that from heaven and make what we truly believed true of ourselves to be real. You're worthless. But God never does. God is for you. God loves you. And right now he is working all circumstances, all things together for your good. It's amazing. It's amazing. So we see this beauty of planning and faith. We also see the beauty of a mother here. Uh, The dad, sadly, doesn't get much of a mention. Now there was a man of the house of Levi. Exit, stage left. No more heard from him. Actually, in Hebrews 23, Hebrews 11, 23, he does get a bit more of a mention. And we're told by faith, Moses' parents hid him in the reeds because they saw that he was an extraordinary baby, which is lovely. But here, in chapter 2 of Exodus, he doesn't get a mention. It's a bit like last week when, when we saw that the only people that get a mention in chapter 1, it's not Pharaoh, we don't know Pharaoh's name at all, but we know the name of the little midwives working God's purposes out behind the scenes. It's beautiful. So here in this chapter, we have no idea about the dad. It, it's the mom who does all the work. I wish it was Mothering Sunday today because this would just be a great sermon for it. God loves mothers. It is a special anointing on you. It's so important. Charles Wesley was a great hymn writer. And his brother, John Wesley, was a great preacher. Well, Charles Wesley said the greatest preacher he'd ever known was his mother. It's amazing, isn't it? Then there's Eugene Peterson, one of my all-time heroes. In his autobiography, Pastor, he talks about the person that had the biggest influence on his ministry. It was his mother. She stood a little over five foot tall. Don't know where that is, about there. She had long auburn hair, which she never cut while he was a child, for, for religious reasons. Every Sunday... They would travel. He would be her chaperone, a seven-year-old boy. And they would travel up into the mountains where they lived. And she would preach to lumberjacks and miners. And they would come in cussing and swearing. These big, hairy, burly men used to carrying an axe and chopping down great big trees. And they would come and they would sit And this little woman would tell stories, listen to stories, play on the accordion and the guitar, and lead them in worship and preaching. Peterson says, these burly men who came in cussing would go out weeping, go out on their knees, calling on God to be near. He said her ministry of storytelling and prayer and worship shaped his ministry throughout his life. There's a heartbreaking little line in his autobiography. One day, she, she's at church and some fella comes up to her with his Bible open 
And he takes her to Timothy, chapter 2. And he says, this ministry that you're doing up in the mountains with the lumberjacks, he says, it's wrong. He says, look, a woman must be silent. And Eugene Peterson says these words. She was intimidated into silence. Is that possibly what Paul meant when he wrote those words? Of course not. But today's not the day to unpack that. But of course not. Heartbreaking. Choke me up when I read them. She was intimidated into silence. Mothers, women, you're incredible. And God loves you. So far we're a chapter and a half into this book. And it's women who are the heroes. The midwives. Miriam. Moses' mother. Let's move on. What about us? It's 12 o'clock. What about us? Well, three things. Hard facts for hard times. Here we go. Hard times can make us bitter or can make us better. That's an old cliche. You've probably heard it before, but it is utterly true. Hard times can make us bitter or they can make us better. When tough situations hit us, it's very easy to rally at God, to shake our fists and say, why have you let this happen to me? To turn to those around us and take it out on them. To be cross with them. To look at those who have what you have not. And be angry and bitter. And here's the thing. The circumstances really don't shape you. Your decisions do. Your day-to-day decisions shape you. You, in your trial, can become bitter and angry. Or you can turn to God and ask him to make you better. To stand, to be strong, to be loving in the midst of pain. To look out for the needs of others, even though you are hurting yourself. After Mother Teresa died, some of her letters and her thoughts and her journals were published. And I'm always amazed that for years, that woman lived with deep depression. Unsure that God was even there. And yet she loved And she cared. And she welcomed. It's beautiful. Hard times can make us bitter or they can make us better. Hard times, the second thing, hard times can show us God's great love for us. Isaiah calls them treasures in the darkness. He says, you have given me treasures in the darkness. When everything else is around, is going pear-shaped. When everything else around us is dark, the slightest light is beautiful. 
And that's what Isaiah is saying. In the midst of my darkness, I see hints of your great love for me. And I guess we need to have our eyes opened to those. Because it is easy for us to concentrate on the darkness and forget the grace that he gives us there. And so in this passage, we see a little glimpse. He was a fine child, we're told. Even with all the terror that surrounds them, they see this little baby, they look into his eyes, and they see he's a gift from God. So in the midst of your trial, what are the little pinpricks of light? Who are the people God's given you? What are the things, the events where you see God even a fraction at work? I think God would call us to feast our eyes on them and not on the circumstance or the pain. Third thing, in hard times, God is on the move. He's not mentioned in this passage, but God is at work. The beauty of God's providence here is that at just at the time when Pharaoh's cruelty is at its peak, babies being murdered, at this moment where he is at his worst, God's deliverer is being born. When things seem darkest, God is at work. We just need to hang on. To hang on him. It's going to take 80 years, yeah, 80 years for deliverance to come. Moses is going to spend 40 years in Pharaoh's court. He's going to spend 40 years as a shepherd. And aged 80... He's going to lead the people out, out into a land that is good. God is doing the same for you right now. Let's pray. Father, we would ask in your mercy that when shadows fall and rain is hard, that we might be protected from bitterness and anger. And that by your grace and by your strength, we might have all we need to stand and see you at work. For you truly have turned our mourning into dancing. Father, I pray that in hard times we might see the treasures in the darkness. Would you give us eyes to see them? If it's just the squeeze of a finger from a baby, Lord, may we see you at work. And Father, I thank you that even when there is no mention of you, even if weeks go by and we don't turn to you or call on you, you are still at work. I thank you that no one whose hope is in you will ever be put to shame. In Jesus' name, 
Amen.